Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on the Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge of potential scores. Stay tuned for a message from our sponsor at the end of the podcast. We'll be continuing our quick hit series, which reviews questions from the last five to eight years of in-service exams. And today we'll be discussing head and neck anatomy and head and neck congenital. Rachel, why don't you start us off by talking about some of the embryology and anatomy? All right. Thanks, Hannah. We'll first go through the brinchial arches. We're frequently tested on those. Um, for the first brinchial arch, remember that the nerve that is associated with this is the trigeminal nerve. Its skeletal derivatives include the greater wing of the sphenoid, the incus, malleus, maxilla, zygoma, mandible, anterior ligament of the malleus, and the sphenomandibular ligament. We've been tested on those. The pouch derivatives, which we'll talk about in a second, include the auditory tube and the middle ear cavity. The muscle derivatives are mainly the muscles of mastication, including the anterior belly of the digastrix, mylohyoid, tensor tympani, tensor valley palatini. And then the arch artery derivatives are a portion of the external carotid and maxillary arteries. The second arch, which we're also frequently tested on, or the hyoid arch is supplied by the facial nerve. It includes the stapes, the styloid process of the temporal bone and the stylohyoid ligament. Its pouch derivatives include the palatine tonsillar fossa. The muscle derivatives include the muscle of facial expression. So remember anything innervated by facial nerve or cranial nerve seven the posterior belly of the digastric. So not the anterior belly, the posterior belly, the stylohyoid and the stapedius and the arch artery derivatives include the tympanic branch of the internal carotid artery. The third, fourth, fifth, and sixth were less tested on, but I will go over the third. So the third nerve associated with this is the glossopharyngeal nerve, which we've been tested on. Its skeletal derivatives include the greater corneal and lower part of the hyoid. Its pouch derivatives are the inferior parathyroids and thymus. Its muscle derivatives, which we've been tested on, is the stylopharyngeus. And the arch derivatives are the common carotid and proximal internal carotid arteries. The fourth is associated with the superior laryngeal nerve of the vagus and includes the pharyngeal constrictors. And the fifth and sixth are the recurrent laryngeal nerve of the vagus. And that includes the laryngeal muscles. We're less tested on those. We talked a little bit about the pouches or clefts. Remember that the first brinchial cleft develops into the external auditory canal, which we've been tested on. The second, third, and fourth brinchial clefts merge to form the sinus of his. A brinchial cleft cyst forms when a cleft is not properly involuted. So these will involute. And a fistula can form when the brinchial pouch and cleft fail to become involuted. And so these brinchial cleft cysts are divided into type one and type two. Type one is near the external auditory canal. So it's inferior and posterior to the tragus, but it can also be in the parotid gland, which we've been tested on. And brinchial cleft cyst two is near the angle of the mandible and may involve the submandibular gland. And remember that second brinchial clefts account for 95% of the brinchial anomalies. And they're most commonly identified along the border of the upper third of the SCM adjacent to the muscle. They can cause puckering when swallowing. And remember they lie deep to the second arch structures and superficial to the third arch structures. So deep to the stylohyoid and digastric and superficial to the internal carotid and stylopharyngeus. Oh, way to go, Rachel. Thanks for taking us <laughs> through that. <laughs> and remember the, for the final tip, the first brinchial arch develops into the tragus. That's its contribution to the ear, but the rest of the ear is formed by the second brinchial arch. All right. I can take it from here and go over uh, congenital abnormalities. 
So the thyroglossal duct cyst is a midline structure. And often in the stem of the question, they'll say that this moves when the patient swallows and it's due to a failure to atrophy. The foramen cecum originates between the first and second pouches and the thyroglossal duct normally carries the thyroid at its final position at seven weeks. And the thyroid descends during development from the base of the tongue into the neck. So if this tract doesn't involute, then a congenital thyroglossic duct can remain. And this is, can present as a cyst at the hyoid bone or up to the base of the tongue. And when resecting it, uh, remember that you resect the central part of the hyoid bone as well. Next is torticollis. And this is a congenital neck deformity involving shortening of the sternocleidomastoid. The symptoms include a head tilt and limited range of motion with a palpable mass on the affected SCM. This usually resolves on its own, but some may become fibrotic and you treat this with surgical release. So on physical exam, findings will include flexion of the head and neck toward the ipsilateral shoulder and rotation of the head and neck to the contralateral shoulder. And you'll have lack of lateral flexion toward the contralateral shoulder. Coenal atresia. Uh, if it is bilateral, you'll have paradoxical cyanosis, and this is cyanosis that's relieved by crying. This is associated with CHARGE syndrome. It can be diagnosed with CT scan, which will show an enlarged vomer, immediately displaced lateral nasal wall, and pterygoid plates. Next is the lingual thyroid, which is failure of the thyroid to normally descend, and this can present as a posterior tongue mass with airway obstruction. For subglottal stenosis, it can be membranous or cartilaginous and can present as airway obstruction. Dermoid cysts present as mobile, well-circumscribed masses near the lateral brow and are treated via excision. However, midline masses do require imaging because they can have intracranial extension. For Gorlin syndrome, think basal cell carcinoma. However, they're also associated with bifid rib scoliosis and keratocystic odontogenic tumors in the mandible. And keratocystic odontogenic tumors include keratinized epithelium without characteristic epidermal architecture, such as red A ridges. And then for amelioblastoma, you, on histology, you'll see palisading basaloid cells. Next, we'll talk about the foramens in the skull. So remember that the stylomastoid foramen contains the facial nerve. The foramen lacerum contains the internal carotid artery. The foramen rotundum is responsible for carrying V2 and the foramen ovale is V3. And then the jugular foramen carries cranial nerves 9, 10, and 11. Next, we'll talk about zones of the neck, which we can be tested on. These are relevant for trauma, so penetrating trauma. This is how we divide it. There are three. The first one includes the inferior neck, base of the neck, and thoracic inlet, so sternal notched clavicles, proximal carotid and vertebrals, apices of the lung, trachea, esophagus, spinal cord, thoracic duct can all be injured in a zone one. Zone two is the mid-neck, so it's the cricoid cartilage to the angle of the mandible, and structures prone to injury can be the jugular veins, vertebral and common carotid artery, and then internal and external carotid artery. And then zone three is above the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. Injury to this can include the pharynx, jugular veins, vertebral arteries, and distal portions of the internal carotid artery. We'll talk about the trigeminal nerve. So this includes the muscles of mastication and facial sensation. The V1 branch is otherwise known as the thalamic branch. It supplies sensation to the forehead via the supraorbital and supratrochlear nerves. They emerge from the frontal bone at the superior orbital rim above the mid pupil. 
V2 is the maxillary branch and supplies sensation to the midface and maxillary dentition. Branches include the zygomaticotemporal branch, zygomaticofacial branch, and infraorbital branch. And remember, the infraorbital branch emerges from the bone one centimeter below the inferior orbital rim below the mid pupil. I guess other nerves that come from the infraorbital branch include the nasopalatine, the posterior superior alveolar, and the posterior superior nasal nerve. V3 is the mandibular branch. It supplies sensation to the superior ear and, and lower face, including mandible via the buccal, lingual, inferior alveolar, and mental nerves. The auriculotemporal branch is easily injured posterior to the mandibular condyle, where it runs with superficial temporal artery. And remember the mental nerve is at risk when it ex where it exits the buccal surface of the mandible below the second premolar or bicuspid. The lingual branch supplies the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. The spinal accessory nerve innervates the sternocleidomastoid and trapezius and is at risk as it leaves the posterior border of the SCM above the deep cervical fascia, six centimeters below the angle of the mandible. And remember that this runs with the occipital artery. And the auriculotemporal branch, like we said, it's a branch of V3. It is most likely to be injured in microvascular decompression of trigeminal neuralgia, which we've been tested on. And it carries parasympathetic fibers to the parotid gland in a healthy patient. And we'll talk about Frey's syndrome in a minute, which can be associated with this. The hypoglossal nerve can be injured in uh, facial artery, superior thyroid artery dissection. And remember that this helps with tongue movement and can result in dysarthria if injured. Great. And I want to take us through some vascular and gland anatomy. All right, we'll start with branches of the external carotid artery and one acronym. Uh, it's a little bit of a stretch, but it is some angry lady figured out PMS. So the branches are superior thyroid artery, the ascending pharyngeal, lingual artery, and then the facial artery. And this crosses onto the anterior surface of the mandible, three centimeters anterior to the mandibular angle. And it runs near the hypoglossal nerve. Branches of the facial artery include the ascending palatine, the premasseteric, lateral nasal, submental, superior labial, inferior labial, and tonsillar. And then other branches of the external carotid are the occipital artery, the posterior auricular, and the maxillary. They're branches to bony portions such as um, meninges and inferior alveolar. Muscular portion include masseter, buccinator, pterygoids, and temporal. And then the pterygomaxillary portion include the palatine arteries, the infraorbital artery, and the superior alveolar arteries. And finally, we have the superficial temporal artery, uh, which has both frontal and parietal branches. So now we'll move on to gland uh, and palate anatomy. So the salivary glands include the parotid gland, it receives parasympathetic innervation from the glossopharyngeal nerve and the auriculotemporal nerve. But remember that cranial nerve seven passes through the parotid gland. The submandibular gland produces the most saliva followed by the parotid and then the sublingual glands. And uh, we have been asked before that the mandibular gland is responsible for basal or salivary production. So resection of the submandibular gland is indicated for recurrent uh, sialinditis or obstructive sialidocolithiasis or pleomorphic adenomas. Chordae tympani, which is the facial nerve via the lingual nerve, uh, is responsible for taste in the anterior two-thirds of the tongue. Stinson's duct is in the buccal space, and it is bordered by the abicularis muscle, the edge of the masseter, and superiorly by the zygomaticus major and inferiorly by the fascial attachment of the buccinator. And this enters the oral cavity opposite of the upper second molar. 
the middle third line between the tragus and the middle upper lip defines the course of the parotid duct. The buccal branch and the zygomatic branch also lie in, in close proximity. And this can re result in a seal or a fistula if it's injured. Superative sialinditis treatment will include antibiotics and sialagogues with warm soaks and fluid replacement. And this is an infection of the parotid duct. The parotid is usually supplied by the glossopharyngeal parasympathetic branch, uh, like we spoke about. And then Frey syndrome, which Rachel mentioned earlier, is when you have injury to the parotid gland. Frey syndrome, which Rachel mentioned, is due to injury to the parotid gland and injury to the auricular temporal parasympathetic branches. And this can lead to gustatory sweating due to abnormal reinnervation. Okay, now I'll move on to innervation to the hard palate. The anterior hard palate is supplied by the sphenopalatine or the nasopalatine, and this is from the incisive foramen. The posterior is supplied by the greater palatine, and the soft palate is the lesser palatine from the greater palatine foramen. I hope everyone got that. A mucus seal is a type of cyst caused by minor salivary gland mucin, and this is commonly found on the lower lip, and an excisional biopsy is recommended. Okay, Rachel, why don't you review some dentition and orthognathic information? All right. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> so we are frequently tested on dental maturity. And so we will go through that the age that the tooth comes in years, and it's different for the maxillary and mandibular. But remember for the maxillary dentition, the first molar is the first tooth to erupt. And the last tooth to erupt will be the second molar, second premolar, or canine, which is cuspid. And we've been tested on that. Those are all from anywhere from 11 to 12 years for the mandibular dentition. The first molar is the first tooth to, to erupt followed by the central incisors. So those are earlier and later. So your last one will be your second premolar, your first premolar, and then your canine. So second premolar is the last one to erupt in the mandible and the second molar is the last one to erupt in the maxilla. Remember that the periodontal ligament anchors the tooth to the socket. Hyperdontia is a disorder of too many teeth. This typically occurs in the maxilla. It's more common in males and more common in permanent dentition. And ectodermal dysplasia is associated with hypodontia, not hyperdontia. Benign masseteric hypertrophy is something that we see and we're frequently tested on. It is associated with repetitive clenching of the teeth. If it's mild, you can use Botox, anxiolytic, and surgical resection for cosmesis, although we've been frequently tested more on Botox injection. And remember, you want to inject within the body, the masseter, anywhere between 30 to 50 units. Unilateral condylar hyperplasia we've been tested on. So remember, this is an overgrowth of the mandibular condyle, and it can present with unilateral facial enlargement instead of bilateral. So that's how you can determine masseteric hypertrophy with deviation of the mandibular midpoint to the unaffected side, class three mouth occlusion and a crossbite. And you'll treat this with a condylar resection. Remember, a myxoma is a slow growing benign tumor. It's commonly in the mandible or maxilla and it should be resected with clear margins. And there's also something called sinonasal myxomas, and those should also be resected with clear margins. Finally, we'll go over a little bit of obstructive sleep apnea. So, this, so the most common site of obstruction is the uvula and lateral pharyngeal walls. And the, common, the most common corrective surgery for this is a uvulopalatopharyngeoplasty or UP3, where this, and this removes the uvula, the lateral oropharyngeal tissues, 
And the most common site of resection is the retropalatal area, including the lateral pharyngeal walls. Remember that tracheostomy is curative as it bypasses all the points of obstruction, but it has a high morbidity. CPAP can be used for mild treatment and tonsillectomy can also be considered for mild treatment. All right. Well, thanks for sticking with us through that one. All important facts. Uh, and we will see you next time. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of our topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.